The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. I think it's fair to say that today's guest is the most important person at Goop whose name is not Gwyneth Paltrow. She's in charge of content there, and her name is Elise Lunin. Now, I met Elise earlier this year. She joined me for my first ever Hello Monday Live interview. It was awesome. It happened at a media conference in Miami, and the audience was mostly digital media execs, a lot of guys. And I'll be honest, not everyone knew exactly how to react to Elise. She represents a brand that many people write off as fringe and even call dangerous. There's been a cottage industry of critics that have sprung up to take aim at Goop. They complain that it promotes unscientific methods to improve your health. But all that vitriol has actually made Elise extraordinarily comfortable with criticism. It's her superpower. She doesn't need you to like her. She's too busy making a website and a Netflix series and a podcast and all the other pieces of a lifestyle brand that has had extraordinary success so far. So I called Elise for a chat. But before we get there, I want to share with you just a little bit of that January live interview. I started by asking her why she felt Goop was so controversial in the first place. Why does that always happen? Because Goop as a brand, we've always had an outsized reputation that has benefited us tremendously, but also is, I think, an interesting cultural phenomenon. And I think it primarily has to do with the fact that we're a company that's led by Gwyneth Paltrow and people have a lot of feelings about Gwyneth. It has only sort of helped us grow and define who we are in the culture. So for people who aren't familiar with the Goop business, let's start there. Explain to us how the business works. So it started in Gwyneth Paltrow's kitchen in 2008. It was a very simple MailChimp email full of typos and photos that she took on her Blackberry. Um, It was highly unusual at the time, but it was a, an unabashed look into, not really so much into her life, but also into the um, restaurants that she loved, the um, clothes that she bought, and the health practitioners that she turned to, some of whom were Western and some who were more alternative. And so here we are now, we have uh, a website. We still rely on our email newsletter. It's our primary driver. We have a series of podcasts. We have a book imprint. We have a Netflix show, as you mentioned, um, product lines in multiple categories. So fundamentally, what are the things that people get wrong about you the most? We have, we have been and will continue to be defined by Edge Case Press. We wrote a listing about a spa, Korean spa, the practice of vaginal steaming, which is common at every Korean spa. It is, it's part of that company's sort of wellness culture and tradition. And so we wrote about the spa as part of a roundup. A fast company journalist saw it, um, and it became one of the things that's defining about us as a brand that we think everyone should steam their vagina. And similarly with this concept of jade eggs, which are essentially Kegel weights um, that are part of a Qigong tradition. And so that is something throughout the years that those seem to be the two primary reference points in any conversation about us. Lots of folks on the internet are writing about jade eggs. Like Gwyneth Paltrow did not discover them. 
Why does it matter so much more, at least to um, an interested public, when Goop writes about them? I think, you know, obviously we can, we have the capacity, and particularly now because the media feeds this, like we have the capacity to bring more attention than anyone else. And I think, um, you know, for her as a person, I think that what she now represents in the culture is someone who, when she first emerged as an actress, was beloved, then quickly reviled. And I think she learned at that age a valuable lesson, which is that you cannot tether your self-worth to the approval or approbation of people who do not know you and do not understand what, who you are, what you're trying to achieve. And that's something that she's carried into Goop. We're an example of sort of a strong female-led brand that's unperturbed by the chaos that is created off-site. And then you work with, obviously, Gwyneth Paltrow, the person, yeah. and also Gwyneth Paltrow, the brand. Mm -hmm. What is it like to work with each of those entities? So there's really um, no bifurcation in who she is. So Gwyneth is Gwyneth, and she's unapologetic about that. So if you've ever, many of you have probably seen her interviewed, and she's not someone who tailors her personality, or she changes her personality, um, which I think also makes her interesting in, in a world of celebrity. She is a very operational business leader. She is our CEO, which baffles everyone. No one can understand how an actress could possibly run a company um, or know what a CAC is or um, care about the LTV of our customers. She is highly operational. There's no man behind her pulling the strings. And she has sort of what that, uh, that super boss capacity to both micromanage at the level of detail that makes you continue to pay attention and then also pull back and let people innovate. So um, she reads, approves all of our content still and just when I'm like, oh, she's not reading, she'll be like, so on that fourth paragraph, typo. So there's Elise for you. She's savvy about the brand. She understands that Goop isn't for everyone and she believes in the potential of what it can be for the people who love it. Now there are a lot of places that you can learn more about Goop. But what I wanted to know more about was Elise. She's had a crazy media career, and that success has often come because she did something entirely unexpected. She was early at Lucky Magazine, a rising star at the most elite of all the magazine companies then, Condé Nast. And then she left it all. She moved to the West Coast to join a digital media company that most of us hadn't even heard of. It is often the case that it is... Um, you. You, you fall into an organization and you adopt those organizational values and it takes a while and it takes strength to stop and ask yourself if they're in alignment with what you want for yourself. Mm -hmm. What made you do that? You know, I think it's because I started at Lucky and for those who remember that magazine, Rest in Peace, it, it was inherently disruptive even as it was and it was intensely derided by critics and media when it launched. It was called a Magalog and people made fun of it. And, you know, this idea that it was about shopping was so silly. You know, men get their sports, but how dare women, you know, enjoy things that are frivolous. Like you can't be smart and want to talk about handbags. And Lucky, I mean, there, there will be people listening, Elise, who don't remember Lucky. So I yeah. remember how amazing Lucky was at 
the moment that it existed, it essentially was a magazine about shopping. That was the point of the magazine, right? Yeah, it, about shopping yeah. and personal style. So a lot of things that Ma- that Lucky did are now how it is. But at the time, it was revolutionary. So it was about shopping. We put credits directly on the page. They weren't in the back. It was about things that were far more affordable and accessible. We championed tons and tons and tons of small designers, shop owners, and then real women. That was the, They were the primary models of the magazine. So it was a really interesting experience to be there and to understand how we were connecting with all of these other women who had never seen themselves in a magazine in that way. Um, and to have that, again, resonance and have it at the simultaneously be derided was a really interesting experience to be the underdog at a venerable institution and to be doing things that were meaningful and yet mocked. And I think that's probably why now that I'm at Goop, I'm so comfortable in that paradigm and I don't place a ton of value in the opinion of critics, if that makes sense. Say more about that. Gwyneth, actually, one of the most valuable things that she taught me is someone who, in the public eye, has been has been on the receiving end of a lot of criticism. If it hurts, it means it's something that it, you hold against yourself, and you need to look at that. It's worth looking at and understanding, like what what is what are they hitting at that you believe to be true? But otherwise, it's meaningless and it's just projection. And people inherently just don't like change. They don't want the status quo to be disrupted, even though the status quo is being perpetually disrupted and the world is evolving and changing and and things are very different today than they were five years ago or 10 years ago, et cetera. Anyone who's in any disruptive industry knows this feeling well of like, why do we do it like that? And does it have to be done like that? And why can't we do it in a different way? And there's always resistance. When you're holding the ball, when you're when you're really doing anything in the world, some people are not going to like it. And that's reality. And I think for so many women, we are that makes us so uncomfortable. We want to please, we want to um abide. And so there is we this sort be of, liked. <laughs> we want to be liked. And so the initial instinct is, oh shit. Oh sorry. You know, let me not do that anymore. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. But I think what we're seeing is that more and more women men don't have that same issue. But more and more women are sort of saying, wait, what? Like, I don't need your permission. And I'm gonna do my thing and I'm sorry if it's triggering to you, but like look away or you know, it's not for you. It feels to me that there is this awakening of women's perception of of not needing to be liked. Mm-hmm. But that's also something that happens to each of us individually. It's, to to yeah. get there collectively, we each have to have our own experience with that. And I, I want to know specifically what your experience was. Like when going through your career, did mm-hmm. you have moments where you shifted how you thought about it? I had to get curious about it and to... Um, lift the hood and, you know, when it felt scary, when it felt like it threatened my, you know, personal security, not in a dangerous way, but in a, oh my God, am I going to lose my job or what's going to happen? You know, that, that, those primal fears that I think that can get stoked quite easily when people don't like what you're doing. Um, I needed to figure out how to calm that and then operate from a place of curiosity about it, both in myself and in other people, and to not rush to shut it down or not get into a defensive crouch, but to really just stay open to exploring what that is and knowing that as a company, 
now at Goop, like that's part of what we do in the culture for women is just like we're the most visible example of this. And I think women look to us to be brave and to keep standing up. We're taking a quick pause here. Coming up after the break, Elise finally explains what happened when she left Lucky. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And I'm back with Elise Lunin, Chief Content Officer at Goop. In 2011, Elise left Condé Nast and she left New York. So you came for Shopzilla. We're still yeah. not at Goop yet. I'm oh, sorry. You... Yeah. I took this job at Shopzilla, which is this big comparison shopping site with this ad tech component. And I knew nothing about the internet. I knew as much about the internet as you can know when you work at a company who puts all of its engineers, of which there probably weren't very many, in a different building um, under a different name. And I knew it would be difficult that it's much easier to create a business behind a brand than it is to create a brand on top of a business. And... So while we were kind of successful, we weren't really successful at scale, and I, but I loved the company, and it was so fun. And so I stayed, and we kept trying to play around and make it work, and I was doing all sorts of other B2B marketing and like learning about trade shows. And, and then I knew I needed, you know, I was like, I need to go back to a brand, and now I kind of have an idea of how to build a business. And that's when I went to Goop. So it had been around for five years. It was just a newsletter. She had started doing these limited edition capsules with designers where it's like one T-shirt or a jewelry travel case um, maybe a year or so before I met her. And But when she moved from London to L.A., which is when I joined, it was sort of a start over. And that's when we started fundraising. And at that point, she it was sort of a – I could – try and build this sort of small, self-sufficient business, or I can go for it. And she really wanted to go for it. So yeah, that was sort of the beginning of, okay, this is, I want this to be a serious business, go time. Was this a sort of um, mission and vision and you were all in? Or mm. was this, were you trying a lot of different things? How you were thinking about it? 
I have a lot of transgenerational anxiety, like many of us, around money and safety and security. And, you know, my mom and my dad both grew up with scarcity and um, and lack. My mom could have $100 million and she would still live in fear of becoming a bag lady. Like she even went on Donahue when I was a little kid growing up in Montana to talk about her fear of being a bag lady with Gloria Steinem. And um, <laughs> wait, wait, how did your mom even get to Donahue if you were growing up in Montana? <laughs> My mom was just known for having this illogical anxiety and a, a, a friend who had met my dad um, when he w- when they were traveling in Europe. Her friend was a producer who had sort of called asking around for, you know, real women who have this anxiety. Somehow they got my mom in, in Missoula, Montana and flew her to Chicago. And it was a total experience. Like she had her makeup professionally done backstage and she was with Gloria Steinem and Lily Tomlin. And um, I think it was traumatizing for her ultimately, but but I remember it as a child. (laughs) And 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 she was talking about this idea that she was afraid that she would have nothing. I remember watching it and she was heckled by this woman in the audience, understandably, who was like, you know, screw you, your husband's a doctor, you'll never understand poverty. Although my mom like really grew up in poverty, so she she does understand poverty. Um, and it was formative. And But that fear that my mom has is real. And so throughout my childhood and even now, She's always convinced I'm gonna, you know, lose my job or it's. <laughs> well, well, so how did it how did it translate to you and yeah. how you feel about your own safety and and how it how it influenced the decisions you were willing to make? I decided early on in my career, actually, in my I did two stints at Lucky. I left to go to Time Out New York for a moment, and during that first stint, I had a coworker who was quite abusive and had a lot of power. And it was very scary to me. I felt under attack and I had never, I didn't know how to find another job. And I was young, I was probably 24 or 25, I was creating panic attacks for me. And I ultimately, it took me a while, but I got a job and it was sort of the beginning of using that mechanism of like, okay, I can always go somewhere else to help me when I would feel um, either uh, under attack or scared or too reliant. And so I, at that point too, started ghostwriting books on the side. So I've since authored like 12 books maybe. And I would do it not because I had a ton of time, but because I always needed to feel like I had a safety net or um, extra avenues available to me. And so it's sort of been a security blanket. It's something I need to give up because I am breaking myself in the process. I have two little kids and, you know, more than full-time job. But that's something that I started at that point. And so when I went to Goop, when I left Shopzilla, I did it because I could only, Goop could only afford me part-time. Before I joined her, I did a bunch of work for her um, because I really wanted to make sure that, and I really recommend this whenever it's possible. And I I try to give people memos or, you know, projects before I hire them. Um, I did sort of a t- way more than she wanted, but I was like, I need to make sure that we 
are copacetic and that you like how I think and that we are on the same page. Um, so I was doing that. And I took another part-time job because I went to part-time at the beginning because until they until we did our raise. And I did a book. Um, but it was a way for me. You're making me tired. <laughs> I know. But it was a way for me to feel safe and like I had choice and options and that I would do the thing that was right. And ultimately, Goop was my home. Elise, I've just finished the whole run of your Netflix series. What was it like to be a character on that show? First of all, let's start with that. I've been having sort of a long, like year or two long coming out um, process. You know, as mentioned, I love to ghostwrite and co-write. I love working for brands. I've always liked to stand behind people. Um, and see how people like the ideas when expressed that way. And so it started with the podcast, which I co-host with Gwyneth, and sort of her pushing me out and making me do that in a more visible way with her. And and then seeing how that felt. And it felt it's been amazing. And so the format was evolving and I wasn't in it. And then I was in it and then I wasn't in it. And then ultimately it I am in it quite extensively. So at least you're not just in it. You, yeah. <laughs> you, you and Gwyneth take us on the journey with you. That, right. The two of you are the, the, the leaders for us. Um, so it's sort of funny to think now about the idea that you would ever think about going in and out of it. Um, at, and just thinking about that, actually, like, you, you did all of that ghostwriting early on. You came up in media as somebody who promoted other voices. What does it even mean to figure out how to own your own voice a bit more publicly? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I certainly struggle with that in the sense of understanding what my voice is in the context of other people and, you know, wanting to feel like I'm more of an aggregator, curator, like good at compiling and pulling things through and making them accessible rather than feeling like I need to be a thought leader. Like to quote Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, she was like, I'm not a thought leader, I'm a thought follower. And I'm like, yeah, I'm into that. I like that idea. It's much more comfortable. But now I, um, you know, and I get like you, I get to interview people and um, sort of pull out their wisdom and then help them express it. So I don't know where my voice fits or, and I don't ever want people to perceive me as an expert because I feel like that's part of one of our problems in the culture um, is wanting to give authority to other people or presume that people know more about ourselves than we do. So I don't know. I'm, I'm like grappling with that. My, I'm really struggling with it right now. Like, what do I need to add to this conversation? Or am I just part of this platform that's allowing this conversation to happen? It really resonates with me, the idea that it is in some ways a lot easier to ask the questions, but it strikes me that even in asking the questions, you're using your voice. And when we just lean into speaking, it will find itself. We just have to be willing to lean in instead of pull back. Yeah. And cer certainly for me, watching you on that show, I had a sense of you as a uh, an advocate for those of us who are searching for anything. I think we've been robbed of, you know, women's circles, women gathering, women sharing stories. Like that used to be part of our culture and that's how we passed down wisdom and supported each other and we don't have that anymore. And so I think 
any way we can do that to be like, it's all okay. Goop has been criticized over the years Mm -hmm. for being a purveyor of kooky, wackamania ideas. And I loved that your Netflix series took that to its heights. It said, <laughs> hey, we're going we're gonna to talk with the straight face, except you, who basically laughed all through the series, <laughs> about everything from magic mushrooms to orgasmic pleasure to psychics and mediums. And I wonder what you're trying to tell us about Goop's brand in doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're trying to say is let's just ha- let's be curious and open and instead of shutting things down or shutting people down or refusing to look at things that we may not understand or that might threaten our worldview like let's just let's just poke around a bit and we try to we don't really operate from a place of ego of like we need to be right and you're wrong and um this is the truth. You know, that is not who we are or how we think that the world operates. Let's acknowledge what we know. Let's acknowledge all the things that we don't know. Let's not pretend to know things that we don't know. And let's get past this idea that people own the truth and that there is one truth. Um, because I think that we, again and again, are shown that that's simply not the case, yet we, we sort of cling to it. That is a dangerous idea there. But I think that one of the characteristics of the moment that we're living in, and it's really fueled by the internet, is that our traditional approach to authority, which has been very useful to us as humans in the world, um, but also has failed us as as women and mm-hmm. failed us as humans, uh, but it's breaking down, whether we like it or not. It's exactly. just crumbling around us. And we're going to have to find a new path forward. And that is scary. Yes, deeply. And I think that the only path forward for all of us is to understand that we each individually need to be authorities for ourselves. I'm talking about it as from like a um, a place of wellness and health and, and like feminine knowing. We want to outsource our trust to um, to agencies, to experts, to doctors, to uh, foundations, et cetera, to institutions. Um, and we're finding that we can't do that. And and I agree, it's it's terrifying. But what we're also seeing is that people are like, you know, I just want the facts. I want like, I want just access to the source. I want the information myself so I can make up my own mind. I don't want to be told what to think. I want to make decisions about my life in concert with people I trust. We're at a really interesting time. As we were preparing for our conversation today, my producer, um, who watched one of your episodes, she came in and she said, you know, something to the effect of, oh, I now get why I, I see something for me in Goop. And I think that that is a really interesting opportunity that you have with these new formats. Yeah. Um, to bring larger groups of people to the table. And then I yeah. guess the question becomes, and the thing that I'm most interested in knowing from you going forward, Elise, is what what do you do when you have them, their hearts and their attention? What then? Mm. I mean, I think that it's happening. I feel like we're what we're experiencing that also feels scary is that I feel like everyone, including myself, like we're all kind of coming online. Like we're all waking up. I think 2016 as traumatic as it has been for many people, um, 
And I think regardless of which side you're on, there's trauma in what, what's happening in this country. Um, I think that it sort of shook us all a little bit out of our stupor. I think it... I think that what we're also seeing in the same way that we're experiencing all this disruption in all of these industries and and the downfall of authority is we we can understand the power of one person and what they can the impact that they can have on the world but we're also understanding the power that we collectively have and the power and the responsibility that we all own and so I think people are starting to realize that, yes, we can focus on global politics and presidential politics and, and all of those big things, but that like the change starts in our own hearts and it starts in our own homes and our own communities, and that that's where we're all like fomenting and having impact. It's like in the state legislatures, it's in local, you know, chambers. It's all it starts there. So I think that this your podcast, my podcast, like all these conversations, it's all everyone understanding the limits which are massive of their own power and starting to take more responsibility for that. Yeah. Well put. Uh, thank you, Elise. I love talking to you. I love talking to you. Drink soon. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Again, that was Elise Lunin. She's the chief content officer at Goop. And the podcast she hosts with Gwyneth Paltrow is in my library. And you can add it to yours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Which brings us to our new game, Would You Rather? Now, remember, the question last week was, would you rather office doors that close or free lunch? And the answer was clear. You people want office doors. Are you surprised? Sure, a few of you said free lunch, but most of you just wanted a place to go and have a few minutes to yourself. You know, I asked a couple of guys who haven't worked in traditional offices in a long time. An office with a door that closes or free lunch? Free lunch. Office with a door that closes. So that was Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. They're both professors at Stanford. They teach this course on designing your life, and it's wildly popular, which isn't a surprise. I had them in the studio, and you'll hear them next week on Hello Monday. To get next week's Would You Rather, sign up for our newsletter by visiting my profile on LinkedIn. Or write us at hellomonday at linkedin.com, and I'll send it to you. If you like our show, and we hope you do, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It takes two seconds, and it helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm and Madison Schaefer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Ariando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, Michaela Greer, and Juliette Ferro make up the Hello Monday Lab. Our music was composed, just for us, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. I do think to the the point you made at the end of our conversation that what all of this is about is a rebalancing and a reordering of energy and a rise a rise of the feminine in men and women. And all of us, men and women, are terrified of the rise of the feminine. Terrified of it. Well, it feels like a loss, you know, for men and it feels yeah, it's it feels like a loss for everyone, but I think it's just a shift, you know, and um, but it's happening and it's happening whether people are kicking and screaming or not.